Welcome back to Coaching Kernan. I'm Dave D'Agostino. I'm joined here by my co-hosts Mark Mark Williams or sorry Mark Mark Wiley and Will George. We're on episode 51 here with a day at the yard common sense pitching with Wiley and Will. This is the fourth installment of this particular show. Uh, we're very excited about the entrance it's gotten. It's really in-depth pitching, but the guests we have will show you that they're they're much deeper than just the pitching component of the game. Um, guys, welcome back to the show. And and Mark, I'll I'll have you introduce our special guest today. Yeah, our uh, our guest today is Jim Rudy. Uh, Jim was in the Orioles organization when Will and I were there. Um, Will had him, and uh, and I was a coordinator when he was there. So we go back a long ways, uh, back to 1981. Um, you know, Jim started off, he was the number one overall pick in the January draft for the Cubs. That was when we had, they had two drafts uh, a year. And then uh, he didn't sign, and he, he became the seventh overall pick in the June draft by the Orioles. And he signed with the Orioles, pitched for four years in the Orioles organization. Um, he got, got a, got a bad injury and, uh, and went into uh, the pitching coach field, uh, started off at Pace university as the pitching and strength coach. Uh, he was, uh, from there, he went to assistant director of training and personal training at plus one. Um, from there he, uh, went and managed in Italy uh, the Bologna team in Italy. Um, he was the director of player personnel for the Somerset Patriots, the same in 1999, 2000 to 2020, uh, pitching coach for the Cardinales in the Venezuela Winter League. Uh, they won the championship there. Um, from 2001 to 2003, he was a special assignment scout and pitching coach for the Toronto Blue Jays. Uh, 2003, he went to Winter League again, this time in the Dominican, and coach, was the pitching coach for Escajito. Um, 2004, 2018, minor league pitching coordinator, national scouting supervisor for the Milwaukee Brewers. He was there for a lot of years. Um, one of their top pitching guys, not only in acquiring talent, um, but uh, evaluating talent. Uh, after he left the Milwaukee Brewers, he started his own company, Jim Rooney LLC. It's a de- developmental sp- uh, specialist. Uh, he does motivational speaking. He writes uh, strength training, nat- nutritional consultant, and uh, baseball skills development. Um, he's had uh, his, his education was at Cornell University and Southern New Hampshire Universities. So we're really glad to have Jim here. Like I said earlier, Will and I have a good connection with Jim because we've known him for a lot of years. We've watched his career path. I've come, I've come across Jim many times out on the scouting circuit when we're looking at the best prospects in baseball. And he had a lot to do with acquiring some of the top pitching prospects that are, that are now with the Milwaukee Brewers. Uh, having all said all that, I think uh, – I just, uh, you know, we have some questions. We, we've we've kind of prepped a little bit with Jim, um, and he's got some interesting stories and things that go that, that uh, came about during our discussions. You know, one was, uh, you know, he was interested in the name of our podcast, um, which was uh, a day at the yard, but more the the common sense uh, 
pitching with uh, Wiley and Will, the common sense part of it. And he has a story about uh, Dickey, uh, the Dickey story. Why don't you, you go ahead and tell us about that, Jim? Okay, thank you, Mark. Well, first up, thank you for the kind words, and it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, yes, when I was looking over the, the title of the podcast for Common Sense Pitching, it uh, brought to my recollection a story back in 2007. Uh, R.A. Dickey had been with the Texas Rangers. Uh, his career was slowly coming to an end, and he decided to recreate himself as a knuckleballer. So Doug Melvin, our general manager who had him in Texas, signed him to a minor league free agent contract, came to spring training. I watched him, and now he had – I couldn't teach him anything about a knuckleball, but he had he had talked with uh, Wakefield and the Negroes, and he had worked on things, and things were starting to come around for him. But um, to start the year in Nashville in AAA, he, I went in to see him, and he's throwing a hard knuckleball, a slow knuckleball, and some of his regular pitches that he used to throw, a four-seamer, a two-seamer, a slider, a cutter, and uh, – he's growing a little frustrated. He's just, uh, in my opinion, he's just trying to do too much. And the common sense side of it is that even when you're working with a young 10 or 11 or 12 year old pitcher, sometimes you just need to simplify things and let them do what they do best instead of trying to do too much. Uh, so I said to him, all right, you, uh, you have an innate ability. I've never seen this to throw a knuckleball fairly hard. Uh, you know, with good velocity, and yet you still get a lot of movement. Why don't we try to simplify this process? Throw a hard knuckleball, and when you need a strike and you're behind an account, throw your slider. You have pretty good command of it. So he says, well, I was thinking of this and thinking of that, and I said, all right, here's what I'm going to do. I'll come back and see you guys next month in my trip into Nashville. Between now and then, if you do as I ask, I'll be 100% behind you, and if it, the experiment fails, I will, uh, I'll tell Doug Melvin that had nothing to do with you, that it's all on my back, and I was the one that asked you to do this. And of course, since he's such a great guy, he said, you don't have to do that. And I said, well, that's my promise to you. Well, to make a long story short, that year in Nashville in two, 2007, I think he won 18 games signed a big, uh, a pretty good free agent contract with the Mariners next year, got to the big league the next year with the Twins. And the following year, the Mets were looking for a, a uh, uh, discounted starting pitcher, so to speak, and they signed R.A., made the team out of spring training, and he started the uh, National League All-Star game. So while I was watching the telecast, one of the things that they specialized on in talking about R.A., they interviewed him and they went into depth. Where did you learn how to throw a knuckleball so hard? We've never seen somebody do that. And the whole take on that evening was that R.A. Dickey, as probably a 34, 35-year-old, was starting the National League All-Star game, and nobody had ever seen him throw a hard knuckleball like he did. So sometimes, like I said, it just takes a little common sense and to simplify things and not get carried away with trying to accomplish too much. I think it's a great point. Well, you had you had a question you wanted to ask. I think. Well, it was it was just more so, um, you know, uh, building off of common sense. You know, uh, Mark gave Jim's resume and the common sense side of me. I always bring up in 
in our uh, podcasts is why isn't he working for an organization with that resume? Um, so that's one common sense thing. You know, the other thing would be um, I got a chance to see Dickey the, that year in the Mets and have reports on him and sat and watched in, in amazement the hard knuckleball that acted almost like a slider at times. It was, it was hard and late. Um, the command of his fastball, the ability to drop a breaking ball for a strike, and the success on the simplification. And, Jim, that's what we talk about all the time is building a foundation, simplify the process um, the way we were taught to do things years ago. You know, people are always chasing these big, shiny objects. And, you know, all the points you brought out were great on Dickey. And, you know, you helped the guy – you know, do a lot of really special things by uh, just making those simple, simple adjustments. Yeah, that's uh, yeah. you know that's the thing about uh, people overanalyze a lot of things in sports. Um, not only baseball, but you hear it brought up in golf. You hear it brought up in other sports where somebody will make a comment that the guy's kind of been struggling a little bit because he's kind of overanalyzing what he's doing. Um, but you know what? Common sense is important because it also takes it takes you on your your path of your career. It doesn't have to be a player. Sometimes, you know, common sense or somebody somebody says something to you that changes your life. You know, after baseball, and I know after your injury, Jim, there was, uh, you know, it was really hard. You know, the one thing that, and I know you know it now after you went off the field, but. One of the hardest things for us as staff members is when we have to release a player because in many cases, you know, we all know the guy had played since he was a little kid. This is all he ever wanted to do is be a professional baseball player and hope to get to the big leagues. And then when you have to cut that dream short, you know, um, it's really hard for staff members to do that because it's easy for us to put ourselves in your position. And I know you, uh, it, you were one of those guys when you got let go because you loved the game so much and you had a lot of talent and you're truly one of those guys that got short circuited because of injury, you know, like you always hear everybody goes, Oh yeah, I got hurt or I would have been in the big leagues. Well, you know, in your case, it's true. Many other people just kind of hope they could have been there. But do you have a story about that after you got let go? Yes. Um, well, it, w it was just one of these passing things where uh, I went home to New York and uh, I was kind of getting settled. And just one evening, uh, my mom said to me, uh, have you given any thought? You know, so you've been home a couple of weeks. Have you given any thought what, what you would like to do? And I said, you know what, mom, I haven't really figured it out yet. Uh, but. I had this one passing thought that, you know, maybe one day I'd win the lottery and I could open up a free clinic. So some of the things that I experienced, uh, the injuries, the operations, the rehabs, and some of the other stuff that, you know, wouldn't happen to any other young players. Um, and the funny thing that, you know, you look back at it now and uh, I never won the lottery. And of course I got back into professional baseball and, you know, being in the limelight and making some good money, it kind of takes you away and you, you get caught up in what you're doing and in your own career. And then now I come back and, you know, 
I'm in my 60s, and what do I do now? I'm helping young kids, you know, try to stay healthy, try to do things the way, right way, and try to throw the ball in the most efficient manner. So I guess, uh, you know, the story of dreams come true or your thoughts become your reality might have uh, happened in this case. You know, along your journey, um, what what are some of the things you learned that kind of shaped your philosophy? Um. You know, I, I remember back to my first full year in the minor leagues in uh, Hagerstown, Maryland. And uh, Hagerston had uh, one of those odd fields where it was 410 to left, about 350 to center. And uh, it was marked 310 to right, but it was it was probably about 270. And uh, me being a young left-hander who, you know, had some pretty good stuff, I, I would, my go-to, similar to what Tom Seaver used to say, he could throw that low and away fastball whenever he's in a jam. So facing right-handed hitters, I would throw, the, you know, throw that running, sinking, riding fastball away to right-handers. And in the first half of the season, I gave up 12 home runs. It was like little pop flies that I said, holy mackerel, how does that happen? So with the help of uh, my manager, Grady Little, and uh, – and uh, the roving pitching instructor, Kenny and Rowe, we focused on pitching with the fastball inside, and learning how to move the fastball in and out and work on some pitch combinations. And in the second half, uh, I had a pretty good second half, didn't give up any home runs. To go along with that, many, many years later while I was coaching, I, uh, I was lucky enough to uh, uh, work a camp and and be involved with uh, the Hall of Fame pitcher, Robin Roberts. And that summer, all our conversations were about pitching with the fastball. And, uh, you know, you look at Major League Baseball nowadays and pitching with the fastball is down, you know, significantly right across the league and nobody wants to throw fastballs and the whole thing. And yet, um, I'll I'll bring up one example. The New York Yankees, even with all their power and all their home run hitters, the team that dominates them is the Houston Astros because they pitch with their fastball. So I think it's a lost art, and uh, I was lucky enough at 20 years old to learn it. it. Jim, you had another experience with Robin Roberts as a, and I, if I remember the story right, it was your, was it your first college game pitching for Cornell down against South Florida. Could you share that story with the audience? It kind of comes full circle with a nice uh, story about your dad as well. Yeah, um, my first college uh, start as a pitcher was down at uh, University of South Florida in Tampa and the head coach with Robin Roberts. And even though my dad, you know, grew up in the Bronx and was a lifelong Yankee fan, still is, he loved Robin Roberts. He thought he was one of, you know, the greatest pitcher ever. And uh, here I, I look out, I'm warming up. And I look out in the stands for a second, and I see my dad with my whole family. He flew, he uh, flew everybody down to see my first start, and I had a good one. I beat South Florida in my first start, and uh, I've been getting on the bus, the Cornell bus. I see my dad making a, a beeline to Robin Roberts in the parking lot, and uh, they meet and they shake hands and have a conversation. Uh, obviously, because he introduced himself as Jim Rooney. Ron Roberts said, that was your, your son, the left-hander that threw today, huh? Pretty good. I'm going to be keeping my eye on him. Uh, the funny twist about it was uh, when I was born, my dad wanted to uh, name me Robin after Robin Roberts, but that didn't come to pass. 
And he told the story to Robin Roberts. And Robin Roberts said, well, Mr. Rooney, I think your wife was, was correct. I don't know if Robin Rooney would have sounded too good. And my dad <laughs> said to Robin Roberts, and it, it's 18 years later and 1,500 miles, I traveled down. And I am so honored that you named your son after me because the first baseman for University of South Florida was James Roberts, Robin Roberts' youngest son. <laughs> That's great. That's a good story. What a great awesome. story. Robin yeah. Roberts, helped, he, he held true to what he promised, right? Didn't he follow you? You met him years later in another encounter? Yes. Yeah, so years later, we're, I, uh, I spent some time up at uh, United States Military Academy at West Point. And we're doing summer camps, and Robin Roberts' eldest son, uh, Danny Roberts, is the head coach. And Robin Roberts would come in and uh, talk to the kids and, and the parents and the whole thing. And at the end of the camp, Danny would uh, take his, all the staff out to dinner. So uh, I was going to ride down to the restaurant with Danny, and, and he said to me, I just got to stop at the house and pick up the dad. And we got there, and he, uh, he said, listen, I got to make one phone call. Do me a favor. Just take a beer down to my dad. I'm sure he's downstairs watching a ball game. So I find myself walking downstairs with uh, two cans of beer in hand and to, you know, to see Robin Roberts. And, uh, you know, obviously there was a little bit of nervousness there. You know, you're about to say, you know, sit down with a Hall of Famer. And as I got down the steps, he said, Jim, how the heck are you? He had basically seen and followed my entire career. And then at the time, at the end, he said, you know, if you hadn't gotten hurt, I was doing a lot of consulting in the front office with the Phillies. We were going to rule five you. <laughs> wow. It's awesome. Yeah. It's a, it's amazing how this game, you know, when you, in your travels, you know, how you meet people. I mean, there's other people you've met too along your way. I mean, how about some of the, the, the guys that mentored you? That, uh, that that you know taught you things that you you never thought about or or never or never tried before. Right. Yeah. You know. Uh, sometimes you think back on those things because when you start coaching and instructing, you know, or even when I was doing the coordinator job, d different memories come to you, different different teaching points uh, that you're trying to get across to somebody, and it brings you back to when somebody was attempting to teach those things to you. Um, Probably at the beginning, it was my father. Um, basically, what 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 he really uh, instilled in me was the uh, the ability and the willingness to compete and to uh, stay focused at the task at hand. Uh, and then after that, I mean, I was blessed because after signing with the with the Orioles, I mean, whether it was my first manager Lance Nichols, uh, who taught me all the the importance of executing, of pitching, having a plan. Lance was the next catcher in the Dodger organization. Caught Koufax and Drysdale in the minor leagues. Uh, he caught my first year in pro ball. He was the manager, but yet he caught all my bullpens. And uh, it was the first time, you know, that not that they used the words pitch shaping or tunneling or anything like that, but Lance Nichols in catching you was teaching you how and and how the shape of the pitch should be, where the location should be. Uh, it's from my lessons with him that I came upon my own terminology of pitch combinations, the ability to throw multiple pitches to the same spot. Um, you know, even Mark Wiley, uh, one day in instructional ball, I'm sitting there keeping the pitching chart and Mark sits down next to me and 
he says, you see that guy warming up there? So it was a left-handed pitcher uh, in an, you know, Montreal Expos uniform. I said, yeah, I, I don't know who he is. And he goes, well, well that's Rich Wortham. And I said, Rich Wortham was a Chicago White Sox. Well, back then, Rich Wortham was part of the Kitty Corp, um, the starting rotation of the, of the White Sox. A uh, bunch of guys that all had bright futures. And Wortham, I think he might have led American League starters in earned run average a year or two earlier, led him in strikeouts. I, I mean, he was a dominant left-handed pitcher in the big leagues. And he was unfortunate that he was uh, in instruction of all trying to get over. He had acquired the yips and lost the ability to throw strikes. So I'm watching him, and Mark says to me, which kind of blew me away at the time, but he said, Doug, your stuff's better than that guy. You just got to work on consistency and learning the game and, and, and executing your pitches. So for someone to sit down next to you and say that you're, you know, your stuff's as good as a guy that just led the record league in ERA and strikeouts, it's, it's pretty overwhelming and it, it sticks with you. But it gives you, it gives you that confidence boost to realize that you belong and, uh, you know, maybe something good's going to happen out of this. Uh, but, I mean, the list of Orioles goes on from Rick Dempsey, who caught me one instructional ball. Jim Palmer taught me all about game management and how to adjust and how to pitch deep into games. Um, Jim Palmer uh, made a couple of rehab starts in 82 in Hagerstown and, and he never he always took the time to come up to me and see how I was doing and talk baseball with me which was just amazing uh, Ray Miller the big league pitching coach sometimes it was just as simple as uh, you report to big league spring training and he says, uh, go out there to left center field and shag stand next to Flanagan and McGregor. Well, you're just a young kid. You just keep your mouth shut and you listen and you just learn a tremendous amount about pitching from those two. Um, one spring training, I'm pitching in a big league game against the big league Oriole teams. And, uh, I kind of have an easy time with it. First two batters inning were left-handers. I was a left-handed pitcher. And uh, the third batter that inning was Terry Crowley. And I attacked him somewhat similar, a little bit different than the guy I attacked before, uh, his previous at bat. Next thing you know, he hits this little humpback liner over the third baseman's head. He's on first base. And Terry Crowley was good friends with Rick Dempsey, and Rick Dempsey must have told him about me from the previous fall. And Terry Crowley was on first base with a big smile on his face. And, uh, I went to the Rosenberg and realized I had just gotten schooled and I thought I was pretty good at what I was doing, but obviously I wasn't. Uh, after the day was over, he came up to me and he said, uh, he goes, lefty with your stuff, stay inside the left-handed hitters and stay hard and never throw them anything soft. Uh, I can remember using that terminology and telling it to big league pitchers with the Milwaukee Brewers and guys in triple I because sometimes left-handers, you get into this, uh, this habit thinking we're going to trick somebody, but when you have stuff, you, you know, you're not there to trick somebody. You're there to make your pitches. Uh, we spoke with Robin Roberts uh, later on in 1999 with Somerset Patriots. I worked with Sparky Lyle, uh, the old closer for the New York Yankees. And uh, because I learned, had learned a left-handed slider uh, and I had learned it secondhand from Sparky Lyle, just watching and then heard all the stories growing up about how he taught the slider to, to uh, Guidry and Rigetti. Uh, and here I was now, I'm working with him. 
and we talked about the left-handed slider. We talked about how to teach it. We talked about it for hours and hours. A few years later, I'm working for Toronto. I teach a young guy how to throw a slider, and the uh, assistant general manager was Dave Stewart, and he came in and he said, hey, Jim, how did you teach that kid that slider so fast? And I told him what I did with him, and he says, that's amazing. Where did you learn that? And I said, you know, it's, it's, it's funny because I learned it originally from Sparky Lyle, but it, it was confirmed by Lance Nichols because he taught, taught, taught me how Koufax, believe it or not, would teach the left-handed slider. And, and then it came full circle that I was back with Sparky Lyle. And Dave Stewart said, uh, Sandy Koufax taught me my slider. I was a fastball split. And the second I learned the slider from Koufax, my career took off. Um, and then on the scouting and evaluating side, I was extremely lucky. Uh, initially, when I, work, when I worked for the Toronto Blue Jays, I worked under Tim Wilkin and Chris Buckley. And even though they had two completely different ways of doing things, they were great guys and great mentors to learn from. Um, along the way, um, believe it or not, because of my relationship with Sparky Lyle, I then had a relationship with Dick Tidrow when he was running pitching for the San Francisco Giants. Uh, there's many a times, I mean, how, how could you, as a, as a young evaluator and a, and a guy who was put in charge of uh, not only developing but uh, evaluating uh, pitchers for the Milwaukee Brewers, and there was many times that, uh, you know, I'm sitting there having a conversation with Dick Tidrow and Mark Wiley. There's doing the same for the Colorado Rockies and Dick Tidrow's, uh, you know, legendary for the work that he did with San Francisco. So, I mean... Along the way, it's just it's just amazing the people that you meet uh, and the opportunities to to learn that are there if you just pay attention and uh, you know and be willing to learn. It's it's just uh, you know I've been blessed with many many opportunities. I mean of, of that nature, uh, probably too many to even mention here, but those are the ones that stand out in my in my memory as of now. You know, Jim, Jim, those are all so many great points that you just made. And, you know, we've been talking about it since we started the pitching podcast and the other podcasts that we started. We're on our 50th here is the wisdom of the game and the experience from the people that you mentioned. And, you know, you and I and uh, King came up as Orioles. We signed, you know, four years apart, but you know, all the same names and the foundation that was built by George Bamberger and Ray Miller and Earl Weaver and Cal Ripken Sr. and those type of people and the things that we learned uh, were are, are so invaluable just by listening and talking baseball. And those things are not being taught. And that's the sad thing. And we talked about it on yesterday's podcast. You know, we're not a bunch of angry old men yelling at clouds. We're disappointed to watch the level of athletes that don't have the wisdom to do the things that they could be doing on a baseball field that would make the game great. It's, it's, it, it, it's, it's hard to watch some days. Um, and you know, you know, Lance Nichols, I worked with Lance and had Lance as a manager as well. He caught my bullpens, you know, you know, no, that pitch ain't going to work. You got, it's got to it's got to start here and end here, or else it's going to stay on the plate too long, you know. So I mean, so many you know, so many great points that you brought up, and that's 
you know, that's what we've been trying to do here is, is to educate people that, that, that the wisdom and experience in the game and the, and the, and the foundational things that we're trying to teach will make you a better, much better baseball player. Yeah, I think, I think you're, you're absolutely right, Will. And, you know, it's the people that you're around, you know, even the best coaches, it's not that we, we experience and we steal ideas and we learn from others. You know, there's not too many people walking around and uh, they're really useful as far as coaching and teaching that haven't learned from a lot of other people. And people get closed-minded. You know, we've been around people who want to put their tag on a player. They don't want to listen to anybody else. They want they want to reinvent the game. And I think the best coaches are far from that. They're the ones that use what they learn from others. You know, I remember uh, my college coach used to, you know, he used to always say, you know, surround yourself with good people, you'll be good. Um, you know, there's another quote from, you know, that girl, the girl that was on Saturday Night Live, uh, Amy Poulter, Poulter, I think her name is, Poulter. She, uh, she made it. I saw a statement she made. It was right along those lines. She says, find a group of people who challenge and inspire you, spend a lot of time with them and will change your life forever. And that those things make so much sense to me, the impact others have on people. And that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to do with this show. We're trying to, and I know Jim's trying to do in his company. Dave's trying to do in his, you know, we're trying to make, the game better through the things that we've learned and from the people we've learned. Um, you know, we were talking not too long ago before this broadcast. And uh, I remember us talking about the first coaches you had, you made, you made a mention about Lance Nichols, but you know, like there's all these guys that, that, you know, it might be just one little part of your, your philosophy, but you build on it and it's a, and it's a, it's a cornerstone thing. And I think, you know, are there any other things that you, you know, like you built on by learning from other people? Uh, yes. One of the things that, um, that hit me early on and then was reinforced when I attempted to teach and instruct others is that, um, You have to start to understand who who's in your corner and who's there to help you and and who's out there for their own personal gain. Um, even if it's just information, I mean, I could tell a young pitcher and we could work together on doing something, but he has to process that information and have that information become his own. It's no longer my information. It's been processed by him and it's the way he does things, maybe with a little guidance and a little structure from me. Uh, especially when I was younger, you know, you just, you thought that everybody necessarily was in your corner and everybody was there to help you. Well, sometimes they are, but what they have and what their prior knowledge is and what their experiences are, maybe they don't quite match up with what you need to learn. Um, uh, I, I, I had a, an experience of when I was getting ready to go away to Cornell my uh, my uh, Irish grandmother with a fourth grade education in Ireland 
she said to me, uh, remember, when you get up there and that professor starts teaching you something and you don't quite understand, um, realize that he's got to figure out a way to teach it so you do understand. That's his job. And and that little bit of advice has stuck with me um, all through my coaching, instructing, and teaching career. But when you're younger, sometimes you don't realize that. Sometimes you think that the problem is yourself because you don't mind understand or Maybe you're trying to learn a new motor skill that the coach or the instructor wants you to want you to do, or learn a new pitch, or learn a new pickoff move, and it just and it just doesn't click. Um, so I think all young pitchers and all they they need to process the information, make it their own, and then realize that there's a, a people that you work with have to start to understand who you are and individualize the stuff for your benefit, not necessarily for their own. You know, Jim, that was a real, real good point. Again, you know, I can remember telling kids, you know, as you are making an adjustment, it might not feel comfortable. You might take a step backward, but it's going to take you a large step forward and having them understand that. And once you build, a relationship of trust, I think, with the guys you're working with as a coach, and they know that you're there to try to help them reach their goals, then then, then they're going to be more receptive also to, to making that adjustment and continue to work on it until it feels comfortable. And then they understand where it's going to take them to in the long run, you know, too. So. Yeah, I think that that this is, uh, you know, these are really great points because the, the uh, you know, there's so much goes on in the game today to where I think you've you hit on another broadcast, Will, about, you know, the focus is on the finish, uh, the finished product, the finished product, the, the, shape, the, the shape of the pitch or the spin rate or the velocity instead of building the foundation to make a good pitch. Yeah, you know, it's, it's, uh, uh, you know, you confirm you've got to develop your foundation to get, get the feel. It's not the other way around. Right. It's, uh, you don't just all of a sudden go out there and pitch and dominate and make pitches without having a really good, good platform to start with. Yeah. Jim, you reached a new point in your, life now. I know you mentioned the story back with your mom when you got released about trying to help kids. You're at that point now where you're beginning to do that. What are some messages that um, you're beginning to or that you hope to relay to some of these young kids in terms of any, anything, you, any direction you want to take and in terms of mechanics of pitching, the mental side of pitching, approach to the game? What are some of your messages you hope to convey to these young kids? Yes. Um, well, the guys hit on a couple of them. The, the, the first thing that I think is of utmost importance for young players is to realize that baseball is about feel, especially pitching. It's about feel. It's an, it's an art form. And uh, the craziest thing about feel is that if we start to overanalyze things, the, the, the analytical portion of the mind shuts off the feeling portion of the mind. So the second we bombard kids with spin rates and numbers and things before they've developed feel, they get completely lost. Um, you know, it, it's it's like if you if you understand the process and you develop feel, 
If there's a bump in the road, you can always get back to your process and your feel yeah. and continue to move forward. But if you have no feel and there's a bump in the road, then it's like you're starting at square one all over again. Right. Um, the, 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 some of the things that Will had stated about, you know, they're, they're, they're all looking at the performance and the result. But no, it's about the feel. Um, pitching is about uh, acquiring motor skills that it's necessary to have feel. If you have no feel, you're, you're just a thrower um, and you're just in numbers and hopefully for the rest of your whole career, you stay healthy and you never get out of whack and everything stays positive for you because which is unlikely to happen because if you hit that bump in the road, it's going to be very difficult to get back on track. Um, the other part for a lot of young players is for them to fully understand the, you know, the mental side that what you do is good enough. If you put in the time and the work and the preparation on all on the physical side, then your body will understand what it has to do and will do it correctly. But you have to understand you can only do what you do. I used to tell the young pitchers in the in the brew organization that um if you were if you were pitching against Albert Pujols in his prime and he's a three fifty hitter, that means that if you make good pitches and, and do your thing, that he's somewhere around six and a half to seven uh, times out of 10 going to make out. And they go, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. I said, but if you're nervous or you're trying too hard or you're not doing your thing because there's a mental block or because you're scared that Albert Pujols is going to take you out of the yard. Now you've, you've negated a major portion of your own abilities. Okay. You've lessened your ability to execute. So now Albert Pujols is a, Seven eight hundred hitter. Which Albert Pujols would you rather pitch to, the eight hundred hitter or the three fifty hitter? Well, if you want to pitch to the three fifty hitter, you need to relax and do your thing and realize whatever you do, it's good enough. Uh, I think that um, young kids nowadays, they're they're they're, you know, and and you and you can say it's it's analytics and numbers and spin rates and technology. I, I understand that, but they they they're always putting themselves up to the benchmark of they're good enough instead of realizing they're good enough. Just go out and do your thing. You know, you be you. Uh, I had, I had an old expression I used to use, pull the rubber and express yourself. You can only be who you are. You can't be anybody else. And if you try to be somebody else, if you try to be your teammate or you try to be the, uh, the all-star pitcher or, for many guys in a generation, they tried to be Tim Lincecum. Uh, that just really screwed themselves up. Uh, you know, you, you can only do what you do. And I, I think those are two very, very important points. Along those lines, there, there's one little tie-in that, that I thought of. Um, during my time as pitching coordinator uh, of, the, of the Brewers, one, one of the things that you would come across, you would see in different personalities uh, and 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 mental mindsets of, of different young pitchers that they were always looking for a crutch because they didn't really want to look inside and realize that it was them. I mean, I had a conversation with a young pitcher and he kept 
he kept referring to his delivery like it was the third person in our conversation. And you know, and, and, and you just had to say, and now this this young man, he made it to the major leagues, and then he he filled whatever hole or lack of confidence, whatever it was that had him in that mindset when we first met. And uh, he recently retired for baseball. He's the all-time save rec- saves leader in Japan. So he had this insanely phenomenal career just because he got over this, this thing about it was always something else. Um, I'd come in t- contact, I'd, you know, in my travels, go into a minor league town, talk to the staff, talk to the player, make adjustments to their program. And, you know, it was that, uh, the day before they had to pitch in a game, they didn't have a good workout in the, in the, in the weight room. You know, so there's a lot of these personalities that they're, they're always looking for a crutch. They're always looking for something to blame besides themselves or maybe, hey, I had a bad day. And with the onset of all the numbers and the analytics, one of the scary parts of that is it produces a major crutch for a lot of people that are searching for a crutch. And when you remove the human element uh, in the game, a lot of these players and even young coaches, their crutch becomes, well, they didn't pitch well in the game because their spin rate was down or they, they didn't do that because they didn't eat. They didn't get a chance to eat a good breakfast in the morning. See, everything becomes an external reason for why things went wrong. And when you lose the human element in the game, you, you, you lose the people that can bring those guys back on track or can help those guys fill that vacancy that they have inside that they need to have a crutch and start to really believe in themselves and believe what they do. And, and I think that of all the things, of all the things that you can discuss about the modern state of the game and modern technologies, all of technology. I mean, I I made some notes like nowadays, the tools to communicate, evaluate, develop, they've all improved. They've improved through technology insanely. But a lot of times they've improved in theory. They haven't necessarily improved in application. Because to apply something, to apply a tool to a situation uh, or a different environment takes a professional who's going to, because he's experienced in human elements and in educating and teaching and getting people to believe themselves, which tool is good for which situation. I always tell this funny story to young guys. If your dad hired a guy to put some really nice crown molding in your dining room and the guy showed up at the front door, the carpenter with a hacksaw, and the dad says, how are you going to do miter cuts with that hacksaw? And the guy goes, hey, I'm a magician with this hacksaw. No, he's not a professional carpenter. He's a guy that plays around with a hacksaw. And I think that's what happens in our coaching and our teaching philosophies nowadays. Um, we have a lot of people that call themselves professionals and they're either promoting their product or promoting their way of doing things or promoting themselves. And, uh, you know, in baseball nowadays, especially on the major league level, one of the things that you experience when you're in draft rooms or in spring training development meetings is that um, the turnover in analytics departments for major league clubs is, is unbelievable because they're always out to get their next best job. So if the, uh, if the numbers 
or the philosophy of those numbers change from year to year, then we're starting over from year to year, you know? And then the other thing that happens is that analytics in itself, I always said from day one when it was first started to be heavily used in, in baseball, in, in scouting and development, is that it, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. If we're only evaluating, scouting, and developing certain certain tools based on a logarithms or based on uh, results, then we're only going to have that pool of talent. Um, if you don't mind, if you don't mind, well, I'll give I'll give you an example. Okay. When I signed with the uh, Baltimore Orioles, and so the first year, the A-ball club in Miami was having difficulties in Miami, so a lot of us went to Bluefield, West Virginia. And I can remember the first time we played the Paintsville Yankees. And I looked at my, my teammates, my pitching staff, all right, and we were all different sizes, different shapes, and we all pitched differently. And then I saw the Paintsville pitchers. They were all 6'3", 215 with the same exact deliveries. And, we, and we, we destroyed them because it was like every day you were facing the same guy. And eventually in a four-game series, you got used to it. Back during those years, I believe Sports Illustrated ran a, a special where they sent a, a writer in who had a little baseball background to hit against the Baltimore Orioles Major League pitching staff. And that might have been the years of uh, McNally, Cuellar, Palmer, and uh, Dobson, possibly. And, um, and he walked away after the four days, and he said, I can see how uh, the Baltimore Orioles pitching staff put hit hitters in slump every single day. It's a different, different style, a different, different pitcher, look, different look. Different, yeah, yeah. You know, so this self-fulfilling prophecy that I'm saying about uh, what analytics brings to the game if we go over it and we remove the human element and we remove the different different ways of doing things and the different things, you know, we've become that carpenter with a hacksaw trying to do miter cuts. Yeah, there are so, so many great points. You know, the, the we talk about it all the time. It's like this cookie cut mentality, high three-quarter stretch, four-seam uh, 98 at the top of the zone, some sort of breaking ball, either sweeping or whatever. But, you know, like your your points on, you know, bringing someone in. Uh, Ray, you know, Ray Miller told us all the first day we signed, he was the minor league pitching coordinator. Re, you know, we had meetings and just said, the reason you're here, somebody strongly believes you can pitch in the big leagues for the Baltimore Orioles, which makes you as an 18-year-old or, 20 year old or however you old when you're where you are when you sign makes you feel confident and he also tells you you're going to be the your own best pitching coach learn you learn how to have a feel for what your best pitches are what it feels like when it comes out what your delivery feels like when you're throwing strikes and making pitches and then I'll steal some of Mark's thunder when he became the coordinator the excuse thing, we shut that stuff down. You know, me, me and him, and I'll let him elaborate, we could not stomach the generation of kids that became my bad. Yeah, we all know it's your bad. You know, yeah, you just <laughs> walked to and gave up a three-run homer. You don't have to tell us my bad, guys. 
So stop coming in and announcing my bad. Make an adjustment and take care of that. So it's like, you know, the, and like you said, kids find out, you know, find excuses and they find out, you know, they pitch fearful. You know, you talked about guys talking about facing Albert Pujols. You know, the thing I noticed when I started scouting in the big leagues is big league hitters sniff fear. And when a pitcher is afraid to throw a strike, they know that they own that guy. And I don't care how good your stuff is. I've seen guys get hit so hard that are scared that it's unbelievable. So, you know, those are just a few things. And I'll let Mark go in. But I apologize for jumping in on that and going off. Well, you know, we all go off on that stuff because, you know, I that's one thing that's always been a pet peeve of mine is alibis, excuses, blame game. Um, I, you know, I brought it into the major leagues at one time and I told them it was totally unacceptable. And that I, you know, you always hear this thing, I'll never embarrass you in front of the other guys. Well, I told our guys, I said, that's the one thing I will embarrass you. If I see you come off the mound and you sit there and that guy should have caught that ball or the umpire screwed me or the mound's wet or any excuses you have, um, that's all it is, is an excuse and it takes you away from your focus to make pitches and to do the job. And uh, I actually, one season I did it and I, I pointed it out. I go, boy, that sounds like an excuse. And I had Buddy Black and John Farrell and Tom Candiotti on my, in my rotation. And pretty soon I didn't have to say anything. A guy would sit down and make an excuse. And one of them would go, boy, that sure sounds like an excuse to me. So it started to perpetuate what I wanted to have happen. You know, I wanted them to pay attention to those things. That's where guys can help each other too. You know, the things that count that really mean something. If you're a good coach and you pass that on to other players, they will they will hold other people accountable, which is something that doesn't happen very often because a lot of coaches in today's game are afraid to afraid to to ruffle feathers. You know, like for me, I think that's one thing about old timers: we don't really care. You know, I, I always get, I always tell the truth. I said, players, you know, people always say, oh, you know, I don't know, the discipline's different now. I said, no, it isn't. Players want to be disciplined and they want to be told the truth. I, I used to, when I'm, when I'm coaching coaches, I used to have sessions with coach, pitching coaches, and I would tell them, I said, listen, I know you're working really hard on that guy's breaking ball or, or locating his fastball. And I said, but, don't cut him short and tell him it's a good one when it isn't. I said, you're doing damage to that guy because we want to reconfirm what we see as a good pitch, not something because of the frustration you've worked and he finally spins a curveball over the plate and you go, that's what I'm looking for. I like that. No, you're not. Only praise him on the good ones, ones that have yeah. bite at the end, that fall off the table. And, uh, we lose a lot of that now because people are afraid. You know, they're afraid to to uh, uh, to confront a situation. And I've always believed that it's much better to confront something before it gets bad. Yep. Well, guys, we, we've had Jim here for almost an hour. We appreciate his time and his stories and his insight into, into pitching. Any parting shots for him that we'd like to ask him before we head out? 
my parting shot is uh, if Jim still wants to work, somebody hire him. <laughs> I think we all agree on that. Yeah, because, I, I think we're missing know. a guy. Listen, we're missing yeah. people like Jim that yeah. possess that passion and knowledge that aren't in the game. That's what we need. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we had Brandon Duckworth on who wants to coach and there's so many guys out there that will make a really, really good impact. And I'm, I'm hoping and praying we see some turn towards that uh, and, and see people recognize wisdom. You know, uh, might've been you, Jim, that we were talking last week. Uh, you know, if you get a Tommy John, are you going <laughs> to, you're going to go to the guy that just graduated from Harvard. Are you going to guy go to the guy Andrews who's done 500 of them? You know, I think I'm going to go down to Andrews, and my GM that went to Harvard's going to send send him down to Andrews as well. So let's do the same thing with coaching. Jim, where can our audience find you? We uh, I know you and I talked off the air, and you know you got one one. Uh, at least one supporter here. I'm taking our whole crew down to see you because uh, we're not too far away from each other. How can kids, families, coaches find you to get some of this expertise one-on-one maybe? Well, initially they could visit my uh, website. It's very simple, rooneybaseball.com. Uh, also, they can look up. Uh, currently, I'm walk- working out of a facility in Fort Mill, South Carolina called Next Level Kids. Uh, it's part uh, after-school program with a STEAM curriculum and sports uh, curriculum. And I handle all the sports. And of course I do all my baseball stuff out of there. Um, so nextlevelkids.com also is a place that you can see how that functions or you just contact me uh, direct. There's Rooney Baseball on Instagram uh, and Facebook, uh, my personal Facebook page, James Rooney and the website like I spoke of. We, we appreciate you coming on today. Mark and Will, you guys bring on, I told you off the air, that the guests that you bring on, they're phenomenal in their craft. But in terms of the relationships, and I think that's been a theme with all of your guests that you've developed with the people that come on and they have that sense of reverence toward you, it's just amazing to me. And I think our, audiences, our audience sees that as well. So thank you two for putting on such a great show. And Jim, thanks for being a great guest here today. We're, uh, we're ha- happy to have you, lucky to have you, and we'd love to have you back sometime if you're available. No problem. I, I appreciate it, uh, everything you guys have done for me. Uh, it was a great time speaking with you, telling some old stories, learning some new ones. And uh, let's do it again sometime. Yep, and I just wrote down the phrase, toe the rubber and express yourself. I'm using that one tonight. Love I love it. it. Yeah, so. great great job, Jim. Awesome yeah. job, buddy. Fantastic, Jim. Thanks for coming on. Yep. This, All right. Thank this you is so much. Good. And make sure you stay on after we don't hang music, out. Uh, music out. Yep, and this is episode 51, the fourth installment of A Day at the Yard, Common Sense Pitching with Wiley and Will on the Coach and Kernan Podcast Network. See you next time.